That's what she said is fueled by Gatorade. Whatever path you take to greatness, Gatorade is there to fuel it. Greatness starts with G. Don't forget to check out DC and RC featuring UFC legend Daniel Cormier and Super Bowl champion Ryan Clark, both Louisiana natives, as they hang out and kick around the hottest topics from across the world of MMA and preview and review the most important fight cards and storylines. ESPN Plus subscribers, join an ESPN Plus Fantasy Football League now for a chance to win $250,000. Sweepstakes is U.S. only, 18 or older, no purchase necessary. Visit ESPN.com slash ESPN Plus football rules for full details and official rules. Welcome to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain, a podcast about, well, whatever the hell I want. Actors and musicians, athletes, comedians, neuroscientists, wine experts. If I find somebody interesting, I'm bringing them to you. We'll talk about how they became who they are, how they found success, battled failures, and how they ended up here talking to me. Hi, I'm Billie Jean King, and my dilemma is what it's always been, time. Time's always running out, and I've always had a sense of urgency since I was a baby, so now it's real. I mean, real, real. I mean, it's always felt real, but now it's crazy real. Being, I mean, I'm 77, so I'm like ticked off that I'm not 20 or, or 17. I'd love to be, like, I'd like to be 17 and have all this knowledge and all this experience, and then let's go change, keep changing the world. Oh, well, Billy, I can't imagine how it must feel in your 70s and for someone as accomplished as you are, because I already feel that way now. Um, and, you know, at the deepest levels, I felt it especially last year during the conversations post-George Floyd, um, that sort of combined with my reaction to reading Glennon Doyle's Untamed, there was just so much swirling in my head about the ways that I'd been conditioned to see race or gender, all sorts of other things, and the ways the systems of our society were built to hold back the marginalized and keep white men in power, to limit women and people of color and LGBTQ plus people, people of certain religions, all the ways that we've sort of been discouraged from asking questions, digging deeper, or seeking change from the way things have always been done. And I wanted to go back to being a teenager. I wanted to be armed with my 30-something epiphanies about life, about inequalities and injustice. And it made me angry that it was taking me so long to get around to really better understanding these things, to listening to the right people, to reading the right things. And it made me so frustrated on behalf of the people who are doing the work every day. Um, to make change in terms of equality across gender, race, religion, everything else, that it feels like each generation somehow has to start fresh. There is a movement forward every day, um, and that is reflected when these bursts of news or moments of violence or otherwise sort of get us really invested in talking about it again. But it's not enough. We still take those steps back and restart in spaces that we shouldn't have to go back to. And part of that is generations learning about these things later in life. And then the system and society and the way we've always done things is indoctrinated a whole nother generation of young people until they age into really seeing things for what they are. And I wish we could all start younger. So Man, it is just so difficult for people to see that endorsing the status quo, pushing back on a change that's wanted, reacting negatively to the people who look to open up your eyes and ask for better, that's as much of an agenda 
as the activists and change makers that are so often painted as rebellious or outrageous or even unhinged or unwell just for having an agenda that calls for change and wanting to rethink what's always been done. Um, the people who want the status quo have as much of an agenda. We just don't know how to talk about it the same way. Um, that choice to be neutral or silent and support what is instead of what could be. We just we don't address it. And, you know, also heartbreaking in terms of time is there's just not enough time to read all the books or hear all the music, see all the places, meet all the people, taste all the foods. So I have to say, I don't I don't have a solution for our lack of time, but I do have some perspective on it. And I would say we we suffer from the blessing of being optimistic and happy enough to see every minute on this earth as a gift and to wish for endless more of it. And, you know, for some people. Life is about powering through, even though you know there's inevitable suffering and pain and, and through no fault of their own. A lot of people, um, life is really hard. And so it's about finding the joy to keep you pushing through. And for the lucky ones, it's about the joy of every moment and, and powering through, even though you know there's endless moments of happiness we won't have time for. And what a great gift to want for more. Um, so no solution, but just perspective. That's what she said. I usually keep my guest bios pretty short, uh, but I want us all to truly recognize the accomplishments of this week's guest, Billie Jean King. You can hear the name and, of course, conjure up all of the wins and acclaim and activism, but I guarantee you there are things that would top anyone's resume, the very top of their resume, that you don't even know Billie Jean King can boast. Um, so here's the short version. It's still quite long, but she deserves it. Named one of the 100 most important Americans of the 20th century by Life magazine, a 2009 recipient of the Presidential Medal of Freedom. She's the founder of the Billie Jean King Leadership Initiative, founder of the Women's Tennis Association, WTA, founder of the Women's Sports Foundation, part of the ownership group of the Dodgers, Sparks, and Angel City FC. In September of 2020, she became the first woman to have an annual global team sports event named in her honor when Fed Cup, the Women's World Cup of Tennis, was rebranded as the Billie Jean King Cup. The National Tennis Center, home of the U.S. Open, was renamed the USTA Billie Jean King National Tennis Center in 2006. In 2017, you saw the film Battle of the Sexes, depicting the cultural and social impact of her match with Bobby Riggs. In 2018, she received a Lifetime Achievement Award as part of the prestigious BBC Sports Personality of the Year Awards. 2019, her uh, California roots were recognized with the Billie Jean King Main Library in her hometown of Long Beach. 2020, she got her own Barbie doll as part of the Mattel Inspiring Women series. 2021, she received the Laureus Lifetime Achievement Award. She's on the board for the Women's Sports Foundation. She's an Adidas Global Ambassador, past member of the board of the Elton John AIDS Foundation, past member of the Presidential Council on Fitness, Sports, and Nutrition. And she has a new book out now, today, written with Johnette Howard and Marianne Vollers called All In, an Autobiography I didn't even touch on so many other things I could. One of the greatest tennis players of all time, a true change maker, a legend, a legend. And, and we could have talked forever. Um, her memory, incredible. The color of her first tennis racket, dates of important moments, remembering uh, at 12 years old this epiphany that she had about the elitist and racist patriarchy of the tennis world and why she wanted to change it. Uh, we also talked about how her ex-husband, Larry King, who is not that Larry King, was able to help her see the inequities for women and fight for more at a very young age, how coming to terms with her sexuality and coming out was so difficult for her. Things you've never heard, like her desire to be best friends with Snoop Dogg and the former number one R&B song that she inspired. Uh, her book is over 400 pages long, so you know that this interview could have gone on for hours. We got in what we could fit in. Hope you enjoy it. That's what she said. 
let's start at the beginning. I know you grew up in a family that was really into sports. You actually played football growing up, uh, but I read that your mom wanted you to try something more ladylike. We're playing uh, football out in the front, you know, and it, we played in the street in those days a lot. Um, and so she said, Billy, would you come in here, please, to the house? And I go, okay. I walk in. She goes, I don't want, I was about 10, I think, or 11, maybe. Anyway, I'm right about in there. She says, I don't want you playing football anymore. I go, <laughs> what? Why not? She says, I, well, I want you to be a lady at all times. And I go, what? What does that mean? She says, well, you know. I said, no, mommy. I don't know. <laughs> so she couldn't really answer it either. So anyway, I uh, stopped playing football to keep her happy. Um, and maybe it was a blessing in disguise. And, you know, if Susan Williams hadn't asked me to play tennis in fifth grade, she sat right next to me. Her dad had just been transferred. Thank, thank you. Thank you, God. Um, and she said, do you want to play tennis? And I said, what's tennis? Because, you know, I grew up in team sports. I love basketball. I love softball. Um, so we went out and played, you know, at her country club. And I'm thinking, oh, this is nice. My dad's a firefighter. No way I'm going to be play, playing at a club. But I thought, well, I guess maybe if we come to the club, we can play. And I'm, I was kind of disappointed in a way because I really liked it. The one thing I, I realized in tennis, in about five minutes, I can hit, you know, like I could touch the ball, you know, 80 to 100 times where playing shortstop at a softball game, I don't touch the ball that often. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of like singles, really. It's the pitcher against, you know, against the hitter. It's very interesting, actually. And when I, when I watch baseball, I see a singles and a team situation a little bit there. Oh, the um, same time. Yeah. Yeah. The same time. But it's also tennis is a team sport as well as an individual sport. And I don't think people realize it enough. Um, so anyway, thank Thank you. We're out playing a softball game. Um, Susan and I played on a softball team out at Houghton Park. And she kind of, you know, I took Billy out to play tennis. <laughs> you know, I'm like, and she said, really? She says, well, you know, they give free instruction here every Tuesday. And now I'm like, oh, <laughs> free instruction. Now we're talking. So I run, you know, go home. Daddy, daddy, mommy, I want to get a racket. You know, God, I just love this. is so much fun to hit so many balls. And my dad says, yeah. And I said, well, can you get me a racket? Can you buy me? My dad says, well, how's that going to happen? I said, well, you won't buy me a racket? And I go, hmm. he goes, no. He says, you figure it out. You, you're telling me you like it. You like it a lot. You might even love it. Well, show me. You know, show us, basically. So thank God the neighbors were so sweet. They gave me dimes, nickels, quarters <laughs> to do stuff around their yards or whatever. You know, pseudo jobs for sure. And and I got eight dollars and twenty-nine cents in this, you know, mason jar up in the cupboard, and I, I couldn't wait any longer. So I had my first racket. It was a Wilson that was wine colored, you know, purple, which yeah. is one of my favorite colors. Those are blues, pinks, purples, you know, purple I love. So my first racket had a felt purple handle and felt, <laughs> I love that you, you know, remember it, all the details had, from way oh, back. No, then. no, it had a white yeah. robe and then it had purple and then it had purple strings. And I slept with it. Oh my God, I was so excited. And <laughs> well, so and I my love first that it was time, free my, instruction. Like that's such an incredible well, thing well, for you access. to potentially, yeah, to have that opening to something that became such a love for you come from that. But I also, yeah. it's funny that your mom wanted you to be ladylike to play tennis because then um, not long after that, you were age 11 or 12, you weren't allowed to be in a group picture because you were wearing shorts instead of a skirt. And I saw that your mom had actually sewed the shorts for you. So was she in oh, some yeah. way- was that a choice that you didn't want to wear the skirt or was she helping you? No, we didn't you? know about it. No, no, no. We just didn't. We're not, we weren't in tennis. We weren't in tennis. We we're in basketball. We didn't know the rules. Sports. 
<laughs> we didn't, and we knew it had to be all white. And my mother did a great job. She made beautiful shorts, and we go up there and we're, you know, adhering to the rules. You know, white, all white. I was wearing, and that was the first day when we went to this big tournament. That's where you start getting. It was at the Los Angeles Tennis Club, which was the mecca of Southern California tennis at the time, and. It was a Southern California Championship, which is a huge tournament in the section. And that's the first day I saw tennis skirts and tennis dresses. I went, oh, mom, look, look at these dresses. Look at these skirts. And then they said, okay, everybody get ready for the photo. And then they wouldn't let me be in it. Well, I'm a child who had not been around. And so Arthur Ashe and I used to talk about the Arthur Ashe humanitarian and was number one in the world for a, a year or two. But he and I used to talk about this ad nauseum about how you have to make your sport hospitable. That is number one. And I experienced something that wasn't very hospitable. And I, you know, I, I had already decided um, I wanted to be number one when, you know, that first time I went out to, to get my instruction with Clyde Walker at the end of that day, I decided I wanted to be the number one tennis player in the world. So <laughs> that was that. Was, and then my mother goes, that's nice. You have homework. And yeah. <laughs> she was great. Well, and I she, read she that always kept my brother and me grounded. When you were five, you were washing dishes and said, I'm going to do something great with my life. So it's interesting that you at these young ages, like there was some big um, ambition and, and dream that was bigger than the, the space you were in. Um, and I, and I think I'm starting to put together, I was going to ask you at, at the age of 24, you were already so verbal and critical about the, the elitism of the sport. And that, I guess, stems from that very early experience huh, of realizing that those who maybe don't understand it or weren't accustomed to it might feel unwelcome. That's the constant um, challenge you want. Yeah. You want to make sure yeah, those experiences do shape your life. There's no question. But at 12 years old, I had my epiphany, which really shaped my entire life. And I was sitting at the Los Angeles Tennis Club daydreaming. It was kind of late in the day. And I started noticing that everybody who played tennis was um, white, you know, wore white shoes, white clothes, played with white balls. Everybody played was white. And I said, where's everybody else? And um I've been really affected by watching television where like Ruby Bridge. Well, this is after actually Ruby Bridges was 1960, but even before when the Little Rock Nine couldn't go, you know, to class, board versus education. I mean, all these things. And I'm living in Long Beach, California and watching this on television. And television was the first huge equalizer because whether you're a poor child or a rich child, most people eventually had a TV or they go to your neighbor's TV. That was a big, big deal. And you'd see these things and you just knew it wasn't right. You know, I just say to my mom and dad, why, why can't they go to school? What's, I don't understand. And then finally, of course, a wake up call. My dad said, because they're Negro. I said, you mean because of their color? He said, yes. And he said, I said, I don't understand that. That just to me is just ridiculous. So anyway, I'm at, I'm, I'm at 12 and this, I just started playing tennis and I just, Ask myself, where's everybody else? And I promised myself that day, I'll never forget it, that I would fight for equality the rest of my life. I just, that was going to be it. And I knew I was so lucky to be in tennis mm -hmm. because it was all over the world, though. It wasn't just in the U.S. And I knew, I just knew as a child, that was an extra to have that. That this wasn't just, this is all over the world I get to travel if I'm good enough. And I knew I had to be number one, especially as a girl, because people do not listen to women. So I, I knew already as a you know, 11, 12, 13 year old that 
we were second class citizens. And then my sisters of color have it worse. And I thought, wow, there's so much to do in this world. So let's go. But I knew tennis was the ticket. And I knew I was very lucky that um, first that God gave Randy me the coordination that we had. Mm -hmm. Then we had parents who did not, who gave us time and space. I mean, they're not, they were the opposite of helicopter parents. Right. Uh, I know, but there's too many of them. And that's why the there kids are. don't succeed. There are. So I don't, what's not interesting just sports, is we're talking about across the board. Everything, everything. Yeah. Great. Yeah. Helicopter and now the snowplow parents where they clear yeah, the snow plow. for everything, oh, yeah. which is just as bad. You know, I, I, I think you also reinforce that idea of, of being second class or understanding the things that you would need to change, not just for issues of race, but of gender. In part, you talk about you met your husband, your ex-husband, Larry King, in the library in, at college, um, yeah. and that you credit him a bit with your feminism because he said to you, I'm here on a scholarship because I'm a man and you're not because you're a woman. And you're the best known person in the whole school. And you're the yeah. best jock in the whole school. And this is ridiculous. And I and I he just reinforced and put it and crystallized it so clearly um, that this is ridiculous. He just thought it was ridiculous. He was a biochemist major. So he had two, two grants or scholarships or whatever we're calling them in those days, because this is pre title nine right. people. I don't know if people know out there title nine is what changed everything uh, for we, for the first time we got athletic scholarships, but more than that, it was the first time they got rid of classroom quotas for women before 1972, like if you wanted to go to Harvard as a doctor, uh, they only allowed 5% of the class to be women. So it's like, whoa. So they, that knocked down the doors. And the, only, and the reason is because of money. And this is why you'll notice a lot of Ivy Leagues and other schools went to co-ed in the 70s. It's because of when the federal government gave these schools money for the first time, they had to spend it equally mm-hmm. on women and men. And so the schools who are single gender said, whoa, we don't want to miss out on 50% of that money. Um, so we're going to go co-ed. And that's why you have a lot of schools um, yeah. today that used to be single gender are now co-ed is because of Title IX. So it changed everything in the classroom. That's why we have more women in college and university is because of 1972 and Title IX. So I was pre-Title IX baby. So I was working two jobs and going to Cal State LA, whereas Arthur Ashe had a full scholarship to UCLA. Stan Smith, who was also number one, eventually had a full scholarship to Southern California. And you didn't see anybody belly aching or standing up for us or worrying about us. Now, if it had been reversed, can you imagine if I had the scholarship and Arthur and Stan, Mm -hmm. can you imagine the ruckus? Oh, my God. Well, so I want to ask about that, because that's one of the things that's so impressive to me about you and that I want to learn from, because as a woman who works in a male dominated field, as a woman who like you is a co-owner of an NWSL team. You guys yeah, I know that. Play yeah, Chicago, yet, so. well done. Yeah, we yeah. when Angel City Chicago. starts, we'll be rivals. But for now, I can good. still appreciate your squad. Yeah, but we're all in this together, which is <laughs> that's, good. That's and this right. is great that we invested. <laughs> I want more and more women to invest. That's why Ilana, my partner, and I invested uh, in the football. And we yeah. also are part owner of the Dodgers. So we're and out the Sparks, in LA. right? I'm, the LA yes, Sparks too? Yes, yeah, Sparks too. And yeah. we're from... I'm from Long Beach. Alana's from South Africa and she was number one in the world in doubles. Really great business person. Very good at sales. Very good at putting things together. But we want to invest more and more into women-owned businesses and also male-owned businesses. That's The Dodgers is very male-owned. In fact, we're probably... Getting the room. Yeah. If we're we're the only women directly, unless you're a wife, 
uh, of yeah. one of the guys, but those wives are very, one of them particularly is fantastic. So very involved. Yeah. Very well, involved. so I wanted to ask about that because as I'm to, to your point about time and your dilemma, it does feel like uh, when we talk about conversations of race and gender equality and LGBTQIA rights, there is a recycling of some of the same fights generation after generation and people grow oh, up for sure. And, and there and, and you do move the conversation further with each step so that your starting place is hopefully ahead of where it was before. But you do feel like you're starting over. And as I'm fighting these fights, I feel like it's so long overdue. And yet there's people that are just so um angry about the idea of women being in these spaces and places. So I, I, I'm curious how <laughs> before Title IX, before women's professional sports leagues were a thing, before it was even really accepted for women to be ambitious athletes, what was inside of you or maybe what were you raised with or to what do you attribute your ability to look at the landscape and say, I don't really give a shit if this exists yet or if anyone else is going to be in the fight <laughs> with me, I'm going to do hey, it. Well, it's not an I thing. It's really a we thing because you can't really do it alone, especially big changes. Uh, you need it as a group, but then that's where you as a person go out and lobby and get the people with you and they help shape your ideas. Cause some, they also have great information you have maybe hadn't thought about. So you come up with a better idea because you get input from a lot of different uh, sources. So um, no, I, it's that 12 year old epiphany. Like we were an amateur tennis. I hate the word amateur. If you're going to get paid and we were getting $14 a day or 28 and then sometimes we get money under the table. So first got in trouble because we fought for, or I did and I was yelling because mm -hmm. by now I'm number one in the, in the 60, like 66, 67. We went pro tennis started in 68. So um, ESPN hasn't started yet. That was 70. What was that? 75, 76. I, so, yeah. I was pretty much finished by the time they got started. Um, but no, it was a long haul, but it was getting people together. And um, it was a lot of sources, but there's something out on Audible uh, called the Dollar Rebellion. It's about the nine of us, nine, we're called the original nine. We just got inducted into the Hall of Fame, the tennis, International Tennis Hall of Fame last week. And Congrats. that was so great because we had seven out of nine there and all nine of us are still alive. But the thing is, we are the, we are the reason there is women's professional tennis today. We are the reason tennis is the leader. We're still relevant that moment when we signed a $1 contract with Gladys Hellman, who was publisher of World Tennis Magazine. Without that moment, women's tennis would not be where it is today. The reason Osaka, uh, Naomi Osaka is playing, uh, you know, she's, the reason she made $55 million last year is because of that $1 contract, okay? I, it's totally connected. Okay, quick aside here. Uh, we'll get right back to the interview. For those who aren't familiar with the original nine and that $1 deal, in short, Billy and eight other players signed with publisher and promoter Gladys Hellman in 1970 to form a separate women's tennis tour, which led to the founding of the Women's Tennis Association in 1973. And it was then nearly 50 years ago that Billy successfully pushed the U.S. Open to start offering equal prize money to women a half century ago again. I'm telling you, this woman was demanding what was fair and equal. You look at tennis, you look at the way women are embraced, supported, beloved, and are an equal draw, if not bigger at times, to the men. And meanwhile, the NCAA is still, you know, trying to defend undervaluing the women's college basketball attorney by $100 million a year. I mean, 
back to that time thing we talked about. I wish that Billy was 17 again so she could spend another lifetime pushing for that same parity and equality across all of sports like she did in tennis. It's, it's unbelievable. Anyway, back to the interview. Elon and I are working in other sports. Uh, our company, Billie Jean King Enterprises, is also do, doing DE&I for companies, which we're doing a lot, uh, trying to go in and look at the culture of companies. For instance, um, at work, uh, 46% of, you know, our, my community, the gay community, the LGBTQ plus, you know, A, I, whatever, it's like 46% of us still are in the closet at work. Mm-hmm. And if you cannot be your authentic self, you don't get as much done. You're always tense. I mean, I was tense. I had a terrible, um, I had a terrible journey with my sexuality. It was terrible. It was like, I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy. And now today when people come out, it's celebrated. And I'm like, mm-hmm. yay, I'm mm-hmm. so excited because finally it's okay. It wasn't okay. I mean, I yeah. got, I got killed. I lost all my sponsorship. I was called horrible. I was, I lost a lot of money. I lost a lot of future money that would not happen today. In fact, they probably would make money today. So because of it. And so yeah. I love it. You know, now I make money because I'm a lesbian sometimes because <laughs> well, we, we need someone from the LGBTQ community to come in and talk and do a conversation. And if you want to look at look at my journey versus uh, every, you know, each person's got their own journey that it was terrible. And can you imagine yeah. the, the generations before me and the people, you know, shoulders yeah. I stand on? I can't. I just can't fathom how hard it must have been. I don't. Well, I want to ask you about that because I was reading that it, it wasn't even really your your choice. Right. So. Two things. You know, I was oh, well. Here, 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 I'll tell you two things. I was outed, but before yeah. that, during the seventies, when I was trying to figure things out, I was told, if I say one thing, we will not have a tour. Mm. Okay. Yeah. So when you're told you're not even going to have a women's professional tennis tour if you start to speak out, that's that's not just about me anymore. That right. is about all of us. So I had that as well coming at me. Uh, plus, the culture at the time was not very accepting. In fact, not at all. In fact, even the psychologist, psychiatry community uh, didn't say we we're okay until like about 75-ish, I think, in the book or 74, 75 in there. I've got it in my book. Um, so um, we weren't considered okie dokie or considered like yeah. something wasn't right but, or deviant. But that's such an incredibly um, personal thing to come to terms with and then to want to share with people. Um, and I, and I, there were two moments in your life that really stood out to me that, that weren't your choice. One was your, your husband sharing with Ms. Magazine that you had had an abortion <laughs> yes. and it comes out in the magazine as, as this female empowerment thing, but it wasn't your choice to tell them that. And then a decade later, you're still <laughs> dealing with this in that you become the first prominent female professional athlete to come out, but not because of choice, because of an issue with a former girlfriend who was, you know, a, a lawsuit or whatever. So now you have these two incredible moments where you're publicly talking about things that there's going to be a lot of consternation and, and perhaps criticism and neither were by choice. So how do you have the strength to react in those moments and, and, and take control of your own story? With, de- with difficulty. Um, <laughs> I probably still try to figure that out. Uh, sometimes just, um, I think, it was meant to be, and I want to use it in a positive way. I want to use my ex- negative experience in, in a positive way, like trying to help people come out on their own terms and trying to, a person should only come out when they're ready to come out. And that should be it. 
Now to be there for them and support them is one thing, but I would never out somebody. I would never force somebody out because it's a very personal, deep thing. And to some kids, they go, oh, it wasn't that hard at all. And I'm thinking, that's great. I'm not going to, you know, I just say that's wonderful. I think it's wonderful. And, um, but you listen, you know, our trans, what they're going through, I just go crazy with that. That's another mm. challenge. And, you know, the Women's Sports Foundation, which I founded in 1974, is very much um, trying to help girls and women in sports at the local level, as well as issues. And the trans issue right now uh, of having trans athletes be able to participate, you know, it's, it's tough because trying to do the right thing, what's what is right. And so I'm talking, you know, I'm constantly talking to scientists. I don't think we know enough yet about as far as the sports. Uh, but the point is my, what I want for our, our trans community is that they get a chance to play. Right. Inclusive and compete. Start with, start with, I inclusion. want them to yeah. find a way. And because of all the prejudice out there and these stupid state laws, um, so I'm, I just spent an, an hour and a half on the phone the other day, Lana and I did with the Women's Sports Foundation got people that are, that are in the know in this area. Cause I'm constantly trying to learn. Cause I know I don't know enough. I'm totally ignorant on all these different issues and I keep trying to learn. And so that was really great to just listen. We listen to a trans woman. We listen to a lawyer. We listen scientists. We listen. I don't, you know, I just know. Bottom line, I want every person, every trans person, every to have a chance to compete and play, just well, like we did with women. Ahead of that, with I was going to say, but but even well, we had Renee Richards with Renee Richards, and yeah, you got greatly Renee criticized Richards. from your peers like Chrissy Everett and Martina Navratilova. And you said at the time all women should stick together, and that's in '77. There are people now <laughs> who would argue against saying all women about a trans woman, and you were doing it in the '70s. And yeah, um, true. Is it difficult for you now? Because I actually I've really loved the way the Women's Sports Foundation has reacted. I actually did a podcast myself with um, experts in the field to better get out the truth about, especially youth trans participation and all the false equivalencies and all the statistics that are based on nothing. Um, But Martina Navratilova is part of a group that I think is doing really damaging work where they think that they're operating on behalf of female athletes in women's sports, but they're doing so in a way that's incredibly detrimental to the trans community and is based really on a lot of fear mongering and not statistics. Is that difficult for you to see? Yeah, it is difficult. I, I even called Martina and I said, Martina, I just think we should back off just a little and learn more. But I totally respect your opinion. I don't agree. I don't know what I think. You may be right. You may be right. I don't know. The point is, I want every person, every trans person, everybody to have a chance to compete and play. Just like you, just like when we started Women's Professional Tennis, which you and Chris Everett were fantastic and helped us so much, but also were the first generation of, it was there for you. Uh, and I don't tell her that because she already knows that. I'm not, I don't go into that. I don't have to tell her all that. But th- I'm just saying this for our audience is that um, they were our first generation of professionals. We're the transition generation that took tennis from amateurism to professionalism. We're the ones, the original nine, plus all the other women and people and men who tried to help. So I said, this is a little bit like that. It's that we need... I think we all need more information. 
and I want to listen to trans athletes. I want to listen mm-hmm. to trans people. They are the ones who experience it. Now, Renee went along with Martina, Dr. Richards, um, and she's she's my ophthalmologist, by the way. Andy Lawn is my ophthalmologist. She's in her 80s. She's retired, basically, but still works one day a week <laughs> in upstate New York. So we still go to her and we love her. She's a great friend. But um, she went along with Martina. I'm not so sure she really looked. I don't know. I don't know. But she said, well, if I've been younger and you've got to, you have to be off of this, um, you go through this transition at least four years to be, you shouldn't do that. And she's, well, if I've been younger, I would have killed all of you. You know, I would have beaten you so badly. And I'm like, I'm listening. This is so, you know, I'm listening because I'm always trying to learn. So I don't know what the right answer is. I do talk to a a scientist, um, Katrina, what's her last name? Kakarsis, I think in San Francisco. I'm always asking her, how is it going? But they've done studies, quite frankly, where men who have won gold medals at the, at the Olympics would, would be considered on their testosterone levels would be considered female. So I right. think the, the, how we metal, uh, the, the metabolism of testosterone, the right. metabolism of every other part of us. It, I think it's there's just, way it's, too much it's, put it's, on testosterone as the ultimate decider in someone's athletic could, ability. I, and science tells us could. otherwise. Yeah. Well, and I it think is it a factor, be. but it's not. Um, it's, it's not, not the, it's the, not the holy grail. All. Right. Correct. And also we only assign that arbitrary number to decide when a woman <laughs> has passed over into no longer being woman enough to compete. We never care if a man has enough natural testosterone to win everything. It's because we want to set barriers on what women can achieve, but we're always amazed and delighted at the heights that men can reach. Uh, But with women, it's always, (laughs) this can't be right. Something must be wrong. Let's go ahead and and regulate this. Well, people want to keep us down a lot and they shouldn't do that because, you know, the the brain power is the, the greatest natural resource we have of any country, any place in the world. And don't ever, ever exclude 50% of the population. Mm-hmm. It's just dumb. And now we, we're, we live in a non-binary world. So I can't even say it in that way anymore. I can't right, say 50%. Right. So I, every time I say something, I go, wait a minute, that's not quite right either. But it's all right. We're learning. Um, we're learning. That's but, the key. The, we'll get right back to the interview. But first, what's your favorite word? One of my favorite words is freedom. If you knew my history, you would know that I have freedom in a lot of things. Like I love Greta Scott King's saying about Freedom is never really won. It's earned. It's won and earned, or earned and won in every generation. Yeah. And how how every generation has to just keep fighting for freedom because with freedom, there's a whole lot of responsibility, which I think a lot of people forget. You don't just say, "Oh, free." I don't. Oh, I I'm free not to wear my mask. <laughs> really? Yeah. You pretty much nailed it there, Billy. Uh, the mic drop on on the favorite word, freedom. It's a great word uh, from the old English power of self-determination, state of free will, emancipation from slavery, deliverance. Um, you said a lot. And I would add only it is a word not to be co-opted by those who forget that there's responsibility in freedom. Every choice you are free to make has consequences for others, too. It's an important part of freedom. Speaking of great words, you're going to learn today. The word of the week is. Shout out to at Adubs Jr. on Twitter for bringing me this week's magic word of the week, capitonym, a word that changes its meaning and sometimes its pronunciation when the first letter is capitalized. So, for instance, uh, a couple examples, March, capital M, is the third month of the year, whereas March, lowercase, is the action of walking briskly in rhythm or walking in protest. Uh, lowercase Lent is part of the... Verb lend, uh, capital L, Lent is a period just before Easter. 
A Hamlet is a Small Town, capital H Hamlet, a play by William Shakespeare. You get the picture. Maybe another example. Polish, capital P, somebody from Poland. Lowercase polish, the action of shining the surface of something or the substance used to shine it. Which leads me to a true story, which also happens to be the word in a sentence. Not yet aware of the existence of contronyms, young Sarah Spain asked her mother if their Polish cleaning lady would be offended by the bottle of polish remover on the bathroom counter. Now let's get back to the interview. Let's go back to that word you mentioned, freedom, because it's not just about freedom for yourself. It's about how you choose to use your freedom and what choices you can make to help others, right? As children grow up, you want them to think uh, beyond themselves. And that's in some ways, I, it's so interesting with social media, how branding has become so important. And that's the I word. I mean, some of the people I listen to, it's I, I, this, and I won that. And I did this. And I'm like, Excuse me, I know you're telling me about your brand, but I need to know something else besides what do you want? What do you want for the world? What do you want? You know, I, I hear what you want for yourself. So it's very good. But on the other hand, because of social media and the kids are so great, the young p- people think about others a lot. I mean, look at the protests, look at the, you know, the inclusion of the protests because of social media, because People don't realize, I mean, when I was their age, we didn't have that. We had to get the media on our sides and we had nothing. And even this day, to this day, 95% of the media is controlled by men. So mm-hmm. it's tough at the traditional level. So, it But is. I'm very thankful to the traditional media, to the photographers, the TV people, the broadcast people, you know, um, just everyone who actually told our story when we were starting um, – women's professional tennis. And if we didn't have that, we wouldn't have made it. So very indebted to them as well. I often talk about that, actually, that um, there's uh, obviously so many drawbacks to the internet, but one of the better ones, uh, one of the better things about it is it removes the the necessity of gatekeepers at every level of what gets heard and, and the stories that get told, because it isn't up to editors of newspapers or program directors at radio stations to decide who gets a voice, because if your voice is loud and strong enough, it'll get amplified by the rest of the people. And that allows some of those people who have not been heard from before. Um, and to your point, doesn't yeah. require the the people in the mainstream media, but it, it's, uh, hard, it's got a lot of drawbacks too. Part. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the hard part is getting it known. I mean, there's so much information mm-hmm. now and so sure. many podcasts, so many this, so many of that. Who do I listen to? I've only got 24 hours a day. Right. Where do right. I go? What do For I do? Sure. And I'm inter- and unfortunately, I'm interested in so many things. I'm like, oh, God, I wish I weren't sometimes. I wish I was just like, OK, I only care about X. I don't care about anything else. It was like, ah, I care well, that's about why people. You're, so, right. But, and that's why you your know, dilemma is time, because there's only so much time to read all the books and learn all the things and help all the people. and make all the change. It takes all of us. That's, that's the deal. That's what leadership's about, though. But followers choose leaders. Leaders don't choose followers. So uh, I think a lot of times people don't think about that. I don't know about you, if you think back over your life, because I'm reading your life and um, my gosh, your jock, your TV personality, your everything. <laughs> I mean, I'm like, this, this girl's like, you play different sports, which is what I did as a child. I know you played softball and volleyball and basketball and you know, you, all these, I mean, basketball was my first love and my dad was really good. I have a younger brother, Randy Moffat, who uh, played 12 years of yeah. major league baseball. So I don't know. Yeah. Multifaceted can be good. Um, it also can feel like there's never enough time. If I could just say on this podcast is that when a woman leads, 
She leads for everyone. Mm-hmm. And I'm sick and tired of when we lead. Thank you what you've done for women's tennis. Thank you you've done for this. No, I appreciate their intention. I totally get it. And I totally appreciate it. But no, we lead for everyone, just like a guy does or a trans person or whatever. Everyone leads for everyone when they lead. So I, I think if we could ever get that to change, and I think uh, at ESPN, I'm sure that's one of the tough uh, things that you have to deal with. I mean, there's very few women really at ESPN compared to the guys. I know I've so, and I think ESPN's hope hopefully will change slowly. Well, fast actually will start it's weird. changing industry, in a faster way. Industry leader compared to everybody else, but still lots of work to be done, right? Yeah, lots of work. Uh, yeah, they higher and better numbers, but yeah. Well, we just did it. We just did a. Uh, I was just. We just did our. Um, our humanitarian awards the other night. Yeah. We, yeah. And we got through it without one the of rain which is named after you. Yes. I'm the only girl though. And I keep saying mm-hmm. you guys can't time to add another woman. one. So I want to ask about, cause like I was going through your bio and there's, there's just a, a million and, and like you, we just talked about, you're the first woman to have, you know, the ESPN humanitarian award named after you first to coach a co-ed team in pro sports, first to be a commissioner in professional sports history to win us singles titles on all four services to read, reach the, the, you know, get the presidential medal of freedom. It's just like an endless array. You could go on and on and on, but I read an interview with you all the way back in 1984 when you were 40 and you said, you remembered how nice it was to be number one and your only regret is you had too much to do off the court and deep down you wondered how good you could have been at tennis. You had just gotten to concentrate on tennis. Do you still feel that way? Because it doesn't feel like you you regretted all the work that you've done, but but to the point of time, maybe you wish you could have cloned yourself and had one that focused on the tennis and one that did all the other stuff. Exactly right. <laughs> Perfect. That's just exactly right. Um, well, Chris Everett's always really sweet. Choice talks about how often I would go to a sponsor meeting in the morning and then play a match and wonder why I wasn't hundred mm-hmm. percent. She, she played me in Philadelphia one year and she, after the match, she goes, is something, are you okay? I said, no, I'm great. And then she found out later <laughs> from people, oh, you know, she was in New York today uh, trying to bring home a sponsor for all of us. And then she took the train down here and played you. And she went, Oh my God, no wonder. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, so Chris has been really, very sweet. Martina, you know, th- th- those two, it did help tennis so much because when they came along, their rivalry just cemented women's professional tennis. I mean, it was just, they were amazing and they took the game to another level. Um, you know, I, I want to talk about what I, like I was on Pritikin in the seventies, the media could care less about <laughs> what I was eating, what I was doing. But then you, you, you fast forward 10 years when now Martina's doing her thing and they're going, Oh my God, she's revolutionized all these things, <laughs> you know, but no, but the media, the people were ready to hear it too. But yeah, Martina sure. was, Martina was such a great jock. She's definitely the best singles doubles and mixed player ever to have lived. She's left-handed, which caused a lot of people challenges, but I, I like lefties because they go into my strength, but um, most people do not. Um, and fewer left-handers in those days than there are now on the women's yeah. tour. So you didn't see the spin as often as the opposite of everything. Well, I think it was Martina that you were talking about. You said you were watching her and thinking, well, that was nice when I was number one and I'm looking how great she is. And you had all these other focuses, which to your point, you're just talking about doing the meetings and stuff. I was amazed to learn after all these years, I never knew that your battle of the sexes with Bobby Riggs was like in the middle of another tournament. You oh, yeah. had, I mean, it was, it was a day before another match. It was not yeah. its own special thing. So beyond the actual physical tennis you had to play, 
it was the pageantry and the emotional energy of being brought in on the, uh, you know, the, the men carrying you on a, on a, on a thing and, and all the Egyptian, other Egyptian litter, I call it a litter, I Egyptian litter. Is. That's the word I, I can know. never think of it. But, um, I want to ask about the mental pressure of that, because the upside of that was huge. And the downside was, let me just walk right in and prove to everyone what they think about women that we're less than and we can't. How did you steal yourself for something that could have gone so poorly? Well, this happened in 1973. It happened September 20th, 1973. Um, And 73 was a very pivotal year in our sport. The men had just started their association the year before. We finally got our Women's Tennis Association, yes, four days before Wimbledon. And Bobby had followed me around for two years, bugging the heck out of me to play. I kept saying, I don't have time. I'm trying to make the Women's <laughs> Tour happen. Uh, da, 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 da. He goes, oh, no, we make lots of money. I got, it's not about money for me. Don't you understand? It's about history. It's about, it's about developing something for the future. And he goes, oh, we'll make lots of money. And so anyway, he went, he started, he went to Chris Everett, he went to Nancy Ritchie, he went to these other players. And finally, Margaret Court, Australian, said, I'll play you because the money was good. So today it would sound like a pittance, but then it sounded like a ton. And um, so I was in the elevator with her when she had told me she was going to play him. And I, and I gulped and I mm-hmm. said, Margaret, 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 this is not a tennis match. This is cultural. It's about social change. It's about you have to win. And I remember, this is an elevator. So you got, I got to say these really quickly because it's only about five <laughs> stories, right? So she gets out to go get a transport, a car. Trans- and I go, Margaret, just going to tell you one thing. You have to win this match, okay? She goes, okay. Well, she, she lost, lost. 6261. <laughs> she got killed on Mother's Day. And I said to Larry, my former husband at the time, I said, Larry, if she's not going to lose. She should kill him, okay? She should. But if she doesn't, if there's that 1% chance she doesn't, I do have to play him. I won't have a choice because he's making so much noise. Sure enough, she loses badly. Mm-hmm. And I said, can we, and I just said, can we wait until after Wimbledon's over? Because I want to get through that. And then we can announce it. So that's what we did. It's in the yeah. book, actually, if you read it. Um, yeah, I'm looking forward to reading it. Um, all in. I- it's called All In. It's called All In. And it's like, I put four years into it with different people, Marianne Ballers. John at Howard, who you might know, sports mm-hmm. writer, um, and also others in the research. We have we had a full time researcher for four years. I mean, it's and we're still finding out things after we, you know, like of course, ah, always, should, that always. should have been in the book, right? <laughs> Everybody talks about that. But it, anyway, there's a lot, and then we had about nine hundred pages. We we had to get it down to four hundred and something. So, oh gosh, well, so you trying to really get the essence. Yeah, no, so, I've written, but no, 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 not. What like was this. it about this? And what did you want to say? What what was no, the, the difference that I need to get in, in this? The last one was like 1980 or something or 80, no, 83 or something. No, this is about my life up to now. Uh, and it's also, I'm putting the time in, not someone's just writing about it. So this was really putting, I didn't put time in with Frank DeFord. I did put some time in with Kim um, Chapin. He was great, but that was 1974. And I just finished the rigs match. I had right. so much life after that. So yeah. no, this one was a labor of love. I put, four years of just off we'd take week I'd take weeks months putting time and effort in on this and trying to get it right because you really want and I keep thinking if we just help one person if this helps one person be more comfortable in their own skin or if this helps give somebody an idea or if this for the future because everything is the future generations everything I did was 
start to tee up for the future generations, just like with the Women's Sports Foundation. That's just getting it teed up. But then what do you do? We've given, I think, close to $100 million in grants already. And we do something with ESPNW, uh, yep. Sports for Life. And those, that's just for girls of color because we know they need more help. So we're, we concentrate on that as well. Uh, so we do a lot of a lot of things. Then our Billie Jean King Leadership Initiative, we go, we give out money. We gave out money to frontline workers. We just quickly made a million and just gave it right out to them. Uh, but we go to companies and we do DE&I um, and try to help those companies. That's what we really do as a, as a company, as a, as a profession. Um, and Ilana runs that and we, we have great people. It's not surprising you had a lot more to add because like you said, not only did, have you done all these different things after your tennis career was over, but you were 51 when you finally felt comfortable talking to your conservative religious parents about your sexuality. And you've talked about what a toll it takes on someone to not be their authentic self. And that a lot of it was not just self-preservation in terms of your own mental health and how you be dealing with the shame that you felt, but preservation of your efforts and, and a concern that who you loved might affect your ability to get progress for women's tennis, right. for women athletes, for all that stuff. Athletes. It, yeah. We really yeah. earned that sport. We try to help all the women's sports, but we in the time since, hockey. so now it's been yeah. 20 plus years since you came out and you were able to acknowledge your true self and your relationship with the lawn and everything else. Um, is there a pivot point after which you feel like, um, okay, now that I've leaned into this true self, it actually is helping me. Or do you still come up across barriers in the work you're trying to do with people who are, are reticent to work with you because of your sexuality? You never know, because they never talk about it. You have mm -hmm. to kind of uh, feel it. And you can, I know I can be wrong, but yes, I would say sometimes people say less and less. Now it's, it's very in. In fact, people in business right now say, you know, Black Lives Matter, which I love. And I've got stick, stuck on my caps and my <laughs> bling and everything I've probably, you know, I, uh, that um, now they're saying it's it's that's kind of calming down from a commercial point of view to now it's the LGBTQIA plus community. Okay, right. so I think there's a huge amount of opportunities um, for for our group to do well. Um, yeah. We're on TV now, which <laughs> you know, look at Rapino. Look so at much. okay. Here's a perfect yeah. example. Rapino and Bird. Yeah. That never, that is, I am so happy. <laughs> I celebrate every time I see them, one of them or either of them or both together because they are the epitome. And then also our women of color with the WNBA and uh, also in tennis, you know, when we started the tour back in the old days, we made sure we had women of color on the tour and um, Bonnie Logan you know, and Sylvia Hooks and Ann Coger were our first three women of color. I'm still in touch with them. Um, it's, I knew if we didn't, I talked to Gladys, Gladys is the one that got them, Gladys Hellman, really. I talked to her, we talked. I said, we have to have women of color. I don't care. She's, well, we got to make sure they can compete. I said, even if it's marginal, we have to have them. And I guarantee you, there's some really great ones that we don't know about. Mm -hmm. That's what always happens. When yep. you have people, open you bring the them door in and give them you a open shot. up yeah. the door, you realize, oh, my God, they're better than we are, you know, <laughs> or it's good or better or whatever. Right. And so it's like we've got to get it. The visibility to me was very important to have them. It's yeah. the visibility. It's the optics. It's very important to send messaging through your optics. So uh, I, I felt really 
strongly about that. Um, and, and that continues Gladys to be the case, to your point, about Rapino yes. and Bird, about uh, the, the women of the WNBA being proud and black and, and social right. activists and also athletes. All right. of that changes people's perceptions one little bit at a time, even those who are, who are not certain that it's being changed. Just that constant exposure yeah. makes such and, a big difference. Another thing I find when someone's comfortable in their own skin, everybody else is more comfortable. Mm-hmm. It allows us, if someone says it's something to me, I get more comfortable immediately um, about them and about sure. the subject or who they are. Confidence. I, completely. It's like it's the biggest attraction, get, like getting to know Dr. Renee Richards back in 77 and spending time with her. Now she's a great friend. Do you realize what a, what a privilege that is for me to know a transgender woman in the seventies compared mm-hmm. to today? Now it's finally discussed. You know, and, I'm, and and they're famous. They're in television. They're uh, Cox. What's her name? Um, Courtney, isn't it? Laverne. Laverne Cox. Yeah. Laverne. I mean, Laverne. No, Courtney's the other other Cox yeah. swimmer. She's on Friends. Uh, Laverne. Laverne's <laughs> fantastic. All, all of these, they're, and they're they're stars now. And I just, you know, the more we see them, the more comfortable everybody gets. Totally. The more we're all as one. It's just, it's a, it's like this though. It's like a yep. raindrop. It's like boom. And you've been on it. Since you were but you 12, just don't give up. Since you were twelve, it's I, yeah. I I'm just so impressed that it's been a lifetime worth of that, and um and to do it in a time when it just wasn't as well received wow. and there wasn't as much support is so impressive. Um, I know that you're out of time here, but you have to do the one thing that everybody does before they what leave they and nobody expects. Didn't expect a kind of Spanish Inquisition. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition. It's the Spanish Inquisition. 10 speed round questions. Number one, your oh, many God. current careers are canceled. What job do you do instead? Wow. I have so many jobs. I, I don't know what job I wouldn't have. What's left? Yeah. Like basket weaving, quilting. Oh, no, no, no. I can't do that. Um, I know physically, actually physically go to an office or not an office or virtually whatever. Right. Work at the grassroots level, like micro level. Okay. Um, like I, I would that. love, I, I, I'm like, I'm connected to this school down in lower East side. And uh, I would love to just work there every day. Perfect. You know, these kids. That's a great answer. Micro, uh, micro, micro yeah, work. Very not micro so much, level. Yeah. Not so much big, big yeah. picture. Uh, number two, what's the most scared you've ever been? Sexuality. Mm. Number three, you can be the best in the world at one thing for one day that isn't tennis. Cause you already were for a long time. What is it? president of the United States. Oh, yes. Uh, number four, what current celebrity from music, politics, TV, or sports would you most like to be your best friend? Oh God. I already have best friends in that area. <laughs> <laughs> you have too many, too many. Doesn't I know apply. I, I do. And I, I, I am so lucky to, to, I don't really have, uh, well, there isn't someone is. that you just see and think, Oh gosh, that person seems so fun. I have to think about it. No, nope. I've got too many of my going through my head. I, always and I think want to make sure it's the right one. Stephen Colbert. Who's yours? Well, who's yours? Well, Stephen who's Colbert. Yours? I want to be best friends with uh, Tina Fey, Amy Poehler, Jennifer Garner. There's a lot of people who just seem delightful. Nick Offerman. Yeah, they are. Yeah. And I, I think like, I, like I know all be, of them. They're like, all my best think, friends already. <laughs> I, I, I know. Oh, I know. I know Snoop Dogg because he and I went to the same high school. And I perfect. would love to have, I would love to have a perfect, a, a wonderful conversation with him. Because we, we have, we have the same, we came. Yeah, because we, we went to Poly High School in Long Beach, yeah. California. I don't know if you know about it. You should read yeah. about it. Long it's Beach amazing. and Compton. Now you know you're in trouble. Yeah. Love it's a, it. 
It's a Snoop line. Yeah. Uh, number I five. I know it is. <laughs> I know. Uh, <laughs> what's your he biggest? Also did, he also did a, I have this tape that I play before I do speeches or conversations and his voice is in it. His voice no over because of Long Beach. Way, man. That's amazing. I, I love that. Uh, and then there's the, there's the Long Beach, uh, Billie Jean King library, main library yeah. that's in the beginning of a commercial, I think. No way. I think there's, yeah, way. That's awesome. Uh, Everyone keeps five, telling me I haven't seen it. What's your biggest, most meaningless pet peeve? Uh, perfectionism. Mm. You are annoyed that you pursue it or when it, when you see it in others? No, myself. No, no, no. Others. I, I, no, I, no, I have to self-improve. It's easy to look at somebody else and say, yeah. you know, whatever. And that's why I go to psychotherapy for 20, 30 years. It saved it, <laughs> I think it saved that probably has helped me more than any eating disorder place and having a psychotherapist for a long time. I don't have to go through my history anymore. No, I believe that um, it's really important to ask for help. And I probably did not reach out for help because I didn't know where to go. I didn't trust. And you do have to trust who you ask for help. That's another whole different thing. For sure. Yeah. Uh, number six, what's the most embarrassed you've ever been? Oh, my God. <laughs> Every time you walk on the court, <laughs> you just want to hide sometimes. Like, uh, And yet I, yet I feel just the opposite. The switch goes on, actually. I love to perform. It's when you come off the court, you get so shy. But you're saying, when am I the most embarrassed? Yeah, like, you know, usually people remember sometime I think, in school I think when having, they wet their pants or something. In, I don't know about, well, I didn't do that. Came close, good. probably. Uh, Glad for you. No, I, I think for me, it's when it's been public. I've had to deal with personal stuff. It's Yeah. It's rough. It's just rough. I can't. I bet. I don't know if embarrassed is quite the right word, though. Yeah. It probably is, though. Number seven, what's the thing about yourself you most like to improve? Oh, get rid of like, especially if I'm talking to another person, get rid of being such a perfectionist, just try to back up, you know, back up, just go softer. Cause sometimes yeah. I get, you know, I just, boom, I want to go for it. Let's go. And then, and then I think, uh, but I also know when I've done my best is when I hit that happy medium type of thing i don't know that one's a tough one i'm gonna think what's that one again let me write that down (laughs) see i'm thinking about yourself you'd most (laughs) like to improve yeah write it down come up with the perfect answer and then call me back improve yeah that's right i would love to be able how about eat less i love to eat man i love i love my sugar if i can go off sugar i'm not going off of it i've decided you know what i'm not doing it i have my seasons lollipops i love them yeah <laughs> um number eight, any musician or band alive or dead can play at your next party. Who is it? Oh, always Elton because he's a good friend, Elton John. Yeah. Well, I was gonna say earlier your favorite word is freedom, and very few of the guests on my show, I would imagine, had a song written after them uh by Elton John well, involving their favorite word, Philadelphia Freedom. Philadelphia Pretty freedom, impressive. Baby. Pretty impressive. Yeah, baby. Um, it was number you know what was great? It became number one. And crossed over into R and B and became number one. And Elton was so excited because awesome. that was his first R and B number one. I think it's the first one actually crossed over. So he it. was so excited. I would love the trivia question to be: What n- former number one R and B song was inspired by Billie Jean King? <laughs> That's such a very special way. Of, you, you got uh, him, Sarah. So good. Sarah, you own it. You own That's it. You so got good. it. 
<laughs> uh, number nine, what would you consider your biggest failure? I don't think of failure as failure. I think it's failure as feedback. I never use the word failure. I call it feedback. What you would see, you consider ball, your okay, best moment ball. of feedback? The best moment of coming out, just being truthful. Yeah. yeah, I think that was very, first of all, it was off my backside, although I still had years to get there. So that wasn't just a one shot deal. Um, also, you have PR agents, you know, your, your publicist telling you one thing. Uh, you have a team of people around you that tell you a lot of things so that 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 was good and bad. So um, right. those things. So, no, I don't know. Anyway, good feedback there. Finally, number 10, anyway. what three individual words would you most hope that people would use to describe you? Leader. Kind, I hope. Kind and, kind and good type of thing and uh, empathy. I hope. Yeah, those are good ones. Uh, and who should I have on the podcast? It doesn't matter what industry they're from, what they do, who they are, just someone mm -hmm. I would find interesting. Have you had Julie Foudy? I have. Foudy's the best. Oh, shit. That's right. You did have her. I've actually read that. Did you have <laughs> you had? Uh, have you had Osaka yet? No, but I would love to. So that's going to yeah, be. I think that that'll be a wrong one. Probably awesome. Get. Hey, thank you so much for doing this. This was so fantastic to talk to you. I could have talked to you for hours longer, but it's um, great. And congratulations on your uh, career so far. You're still young, very young. <laughs> so uh, do you have a dream at all? Like beyond what, what do you, if you had the one dream you could have, what would it be? Mm, I'm not very good at that, unfortunately. Okay. Well, I'm still working on it. That. Yeah. I'm good. still working on the dream. It keeps changing. It used to be to have my own, uh, like kind of late night TV show kind of thing, but I think that's, it's getting oh, a lot, Steve. it's getting a lot bigger. Yeah. Like Steve Colbert, uh, it's getting right. a lot bigger to, to things that involve big picture other people change as I get older, uh -huh. which I think is a, a good sign. Yep. Less about me, more about yeah. we, like you said. Yeah, yeah, I think the we is really important when people start to think about things. It, yeah. it makes it more fun. It's yeah. totally more fun than more the rewarding, I think. For sure. Oh, it's just more uh, fun to be with. Well, if you love people, I love people. So yeah. So, well, yeah. thank you so much for doing this. I know you're busy and um, appreciate so much the time and for setting it up. All right. Yeah. Thanks a lot, Sarah. I hope I get to see you in the future. Yeah, for sure. At a, at a Red All Stars right. Angel City game. Yeah, right. Keep going for it. <laughs> That's what she said. Oh, yeah. One more thing. This is a place for rants or raves or to tell you to read something, watch something, uh, check something out, whatever's on my mind. And I think it's quite clear what's on my mind. Go read Billie Jean King's book, All In. It's out now. What a powerhouse. What a force. We men, women, non-binary people, as she mentioned, she's led all of us and we owe her a debt of gratitude and we owe her the drive and passion to take up her causes and keep the ball moving in the right direction. Eventually she will run out of time. We need to use our limited time to keep pushing and fighting the way she has since she was 12 years old for the things that matter most. What a queen. Uh, you can always tweet me at Sarah Spain. If you've got guest suggestions, questions, or more, you should always go to the iTunes or podcast app. Subscribe to That's What She Said with Sarah Spain. Rate it five stars, please, and give a review. Thanks, as always, for lasting about an hour with me. That's what she said. <laughs> <laughs>